Hey there, my name is Ryan Hughley, and I'm lead pastor of Ridgeline Church in Salt Lake City, Utah. Thanks for checking out our podcast. Our goal is to help as many people as possible meet and mature in the Jesus of the Bible. For more information about our ministry, visit our website at ridgeline.church. If you enjoy the podcast, consider subscribing on the platform of your choice. Thanks again for listening, and I pray God's Spirit uses this message to revive you in a fresh way. Well, if you haven't been following along, uh, we're in a refresher series on relationships. From the opening pages of scripture, it becomes apparent that God created friendship as foundational to our flourishing as human beings, meaning that God created you and I for relationship with him and for relationships with one another. The problem is, and I think you can probably relate to this, but getting and remaining deeply connected to one another often feels very complicated. But the truth is, if you really, really pay attention, most of our relational issues that we run into, whether it's in our marriages or uh, friendship with uh, people that we are in relationship with in any capacity, most of the time, those complications in our relationships are the, are the result of a failure to do a few things very, very well. And so what we're doing is we're taking just a few weeks to revisit how we can best live out three simple sentences in our relationships with one another. I love you. I am sorry. I forgive you. And so last week, we studied the foundational nature of love within friendship, and we learned that there is no lasting friendship in any capacity or in any form apart from self-sacrificing love. Now this week, I want to focus our attention on how God would have us respond when we actually get that very love wrong. So how do we respond when we are not patient and kind? How do we respond when we do get irritable? or envious, when we don't believe the best about one another. I want to talk about the three words in the English language that may just be most difficult for some of us to say out loud. I am sorry. And I was thinking this week that when it comes to apologizing, there are basically like three types of people in the world. The first is, there are those who simply do not apologize when they're wrong. You may have a parent like this, uh, you may have a spouse like this, you may have a child, a friend, a coworker who's like this, you may be a person like this. The refusal to apologize is often rooted in this prideful insecurity that cannot admit fault without the house of cards that is a fragile ego falling apart. So they might try to make up for it. Uh, for mistakes that they make in relationship in some sort of well-intentioned but ill-conceived manner. But what you won't hear is a healing apology. The second type of person is, is, is one who offers a bad apology. Now, a bad apology sometimes is worse than no apology. A bad apology is one that makes excuses, that shifts the blame, that downplays the significance and the impact of personal sin against another person. And sadly, one thing that these first two types of people almost always share in common is a sea of strained relationships in their wake. Now, the third type of person is one who's willing to humbly practice the art of the reconciling apology. Now, I want you to 
note something. The difference between these three types of people is not some sort of moral superiority in, in one that results in this sinless perfection that is immune to making mistakes and failing to love other people well. In fact, all three share the opposite in common. They all fail to love well. No one but Jesus loves perfectly. So our failure to love is never in question. It is going to happen. We all fail to love in the style of 1 Corinthians 13 that we studied together last week. The difference between them is how they respond when they inevitably do fail to love well. And what Jesus makes clear for us in the Gospels, where we're going to look this morning, but throughout the Gospels, is his desire that we would be a people who apologize well. And so to that end, I just want to do two things this morning. The first is, I want to build a very simple theology of apology, especially highlighting the urgency that God feels and the the urgency that he desires from us around reconciliation when we have a strain in relationship. And then secondly, I want to share uh, four marks of a reconciling apology. Again, because apologizing well is not something that always comes naturally and easily to us, let's look at the Bible and look at how how would the scriptures teach us to apologize well in a way that does actually accomplish reconciliation and strained relationships. So if you haven't yet, do me a favor and open a Bible if you have one with you, uh, or a mobile app, whatever you want to read on. If you don't have the Bible with you today, it's okay. Most of the scripture will be on the screen. I'll read all of it to us but we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5, okay? Matthew chapter 5, we're just going to look at verses 23 and 24, and we're just going to call this message, I am sorry. That's what we're after. Now, as always, let me start by sharing just a little bit of context for these two verses that we're going to sit with this morning. Uh, Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7 comprise what is traditionally known as Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. This is the most concentrated collection of Jesus' most countercultural instruction on life within his kingdom. So if you're not familiar with the teachings of Jesus, he is constantly challenging so many of the religious norms of his day. And the truth is he still challenges many of the religious norms in our own day. While we may not live in the exact same religious context that he did, we do live with the same religious tendency to make the focus of our faith exclusively about rule keeping. And as a result of that, the majority of our energy and instruction tends to be focused on what we do or do not eat and drink as Christians, or what we should or should not watch or listen to as Christians. We often make Christian faith first and foremost about a particular sexual ethic or a view of gender and marriage. And in the exact same way, the religious leaders of Jesus' day had conditioned their culture to obsess over outward conformity to specific religious laws to the neglect of their heart. And so Jesus came teaching this radically different ethic that showed how even though we may not break these laws outwardly, inwardly, we are all guilty of breaking them nonetheless, which meant and which still means No one will ever be made right with God through external rule keeping. And if you think about the one thing that all religion, 
regardless of the face that it takes, but the one thread that tends to run through all religion is the belief that we can somehow make ourselves right with God through rule keeping. But the message that Jesus came proclaiming over and over and over and over again was that we need a savior who would transform our hearts. And so here in chapter five, Jesus is unpacking all of this in the context of murder. He's showing them how even though they may have kept the law that said, do not murder, their hearts were still prone to the very anger that produces murder. And so as an antidote of sorts, Jesus highlights the importance of relational reconciliation. So with all of that in our minds, look with me at Matthew chapter 5, verses 22, or 23 and 24, and listen to what Jesus says here. He says, so if you are offering your gift on the altar, and there you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled with your brother or sister, and then come and offer your gift. All right, so here is the foundation, what needs to come first in our theology of an apology. It begins with this. If you're taking notes, write this down. Relational reconciliation is of urgent importance to Jesus. Relational reconciliation is of urgent importance to Jesus. Now let's unpack that just a little bit from these verses. So Jesus pictures here a sacred and important practice in Jewish culture. A person is offering a sacrifice of worship at the temple through a, uh, through, uh, through a priest. And so to really appreciate this, we have to wrap our heads around the significance of this act because it was not one that should be taken lightly. Like when we come together for worship like this, it's fine for people to get up and to run to the bathroom in the middle and when we have coffee to grab coffee and come back in. I don't love that. Get it on the way in. That'd be awesome. But, but that kind of movement in the room is pretty normative. This was a different culture, a different context. And this was a very sacred experience that Jesus is describing here. I mean, for the Jewish people, you were standing in the temple, the physical picture of God's presence on this earth. And you were offering him worship through a sacrifice, one of the oldest and the most essential spiritual practices in Jewish life. And so the point is, few things would ever take precedent over what Jesus is describing here. But then in Jesus' example, mid-sacrifice, this worshiper remembers something. They're offering their sacrifice and they remember that a friend or a loved one is harboring hurt toward them due to what we can safely assume is the result of some failure on the part of the worshiper. Now, I don't know about you, but I would expect Jesus to say something like, hey, when you are, when you are offering a sacrifice and you remember that you have hurt someone, finish worshiping, finish making your sacrifice, and then go make that right as quickly as you can. But notice, that's not what Jesus' instruction is here. Instead, Jesus says, man, even if you are offering a sacrifice and you remember in that moment that you have hurt someone, leave the offering right there. Stop what you're doing. Don't take one more step toward the altar. First, go fix the relationship. Reconcile. Apologize. Seek forgiveness. Then, come and finish offering your sacrifice. 
So it's not the command to reconcile that should surprise us. Like we should sort of expect that, right? Relationships clearly, clearly matter to Jesus. So of course he wants us to reconcile when we are estranged from one another. What's surprising is how urgent this matter is to Jesus. And we see this in his choice of example and the location that he is teaching from. So the Sermon on the Mount takes place in Galilee. Uh, Jesus is teaching in Galilee. He's preaching, teaching, healing at this time of his ministry. And Galilee sits about 80 miles from Jerusalem where the temple in the center of Jewish worship was and is located. So imagine with me that we're all sitting in Galilee and we are hearing Jesus teach this specific example about the urgent importance of reconciliation. As they were sitting there listening, they would have been thinking, hold on, hold on, hold on. Like, we totally get, Jesus, that this is super, super important. But, you know, it takes us like upwards of a week to get from Galilee to Jerusalem to make sacrifices. So are you saying to us that, that even if we have spent a week getting there and we realize that someone back home has some issue with us because of something we've done, we're literally supposed to leave this here. We're to make the week trek back to work that out and then come all the way back 80 miles in order to finish making that sacrifice? And the thing is, that's exactly what Jesus has just said. And so while he might be employing some degree of hyperbole here, he does so for a specific purpose. He wants them and he wants us to know that relational reconciliation is of urgent importance to him and to our flourishing in life. And this is the foundation of our understanding of apology and repentance and reconciliation and relationship. The reality is reconciliation tends to be far more important to Jesus than it often is to us. From his perspective and his view, which is the one that matters, it should be top priority for us. But you know, that still leaves another question in front of us that we need more scripture to, set, to shed more light on. And that question is, how do we actually go about making a reconciling apology? Because it's often not as simple as just saying, hey, I'm, I'm sorry about that. Can we move on? And if you've ever gotten one of those apologies, you know that doesn't feel awesome and it doesn't actually produce reconciliation. So how exactly do we go about making a reconciling apology? I'll give you four things that we see specifically in Psalm 51, which I'll tell you more about in just a moment, okay? The first one is this. Number one, acknowledge wrong done. Acknowledge wrong done. And here's the thing. This confession, this acknowledgement that wrong has been done, it needs to flow in two directions. It needs to flow first to God and then to the person that we've wronged. Psalm 51 records King David's repentance following his spectacular failure of infidelity with Bathsheba and the subsequent murder of her husband. And so in Psalm 51, we see David working through this failure on his part, this massive sin on his part. We see him working through that with God. And uh, in verse 4, he says this, Against you, he's talking to God, against you and you alone, I have sinned and done this evil in your sight. And so the point in what he's saying is that all sin is first and foremost an offense against God. He has created us and he has called us to live in a particular way that has so much to do with the way that we treat one another. And so the reality is when we step outside of that, 
we not only sin against one another, but we also, first and foremost, sin against God. Now, the good news is, in, in Proverbs 28, 13, we read this, the one who conceals his sins will not prosper, which is why we don't hide our sin. But whoever confesses and renounces them will find mercy. So first and foremost, we acknowledge our wrong to God. But it certainly does not stop there. James chapter 5, verse 16 says, Confess your sins one to another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. Now James may have confession of sin in general in mind here, but it would certainly extend to the sins that we commit against one another. Furthermore, 1 Corinthians 13 told us last week that love rejoices in the truth. And so if the truth is we have hurt someone, love demands that we acknowledge that. Now let me just give you a, uh, a, a practical pro tip on this point, okay? A reconciling apology starts by acknowledging wrong done, and then I would add this, acknowledging wrong done without making excuses. If you've ever been apologized to by someone, and then they followed that apology with a army of excuses, you know that it, it, it's like not very helpful, right? This is why Benjamin Franklin famously said, never ruin an apology with an excuse. Excuses are meant to downplay responsibility and they rob our confession of true power. So, if you want to offer a reconciling apology, start by acknowledging wrong done, but without excuse. Here's the second thing. Number two is accept full ownership. Accept full ownership. Back in Psalm 51, David takes full ownership for his actions in verse three, writing this, for I am conscious of my rebellion and my sin is always before me. So this is David saying, man, all of this that I've done, it's like 100% on me. I'm the one who made these decisions. I'm the one who did these things. And that is ownership. In fact, you can read all 19 verses of Psalm 51, and guess what you won't find? You will not find one instance in which David shifts the blame to anyone else. And the truth is, he could have. Like, it would have been gross, but he definitely could have shifted the blame the way that we are so often prone to. Like, if you don't know the full story, you can read the story of what happened and that what le leads to Psalm 51 in 2 Samuel, specifically chapters 11 and 12. So if you want to read that story later, 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12. But here's the cliff notes for the sake of time. King David is supposed to be on the battlefield with his army. And instead, he chooses to stay home. And one evening, he's out walking on the roof of his palace to get some air. And as he walks around, he happens to spot a beautiful woman bathing. He then inquires about her and finds out that this woman's name is Bathsheba, who also happens to be the wife of Uriah, one of David's most trusted soldiers. And this is where like this whole thing should have stopped and shut down. But not to be deterred, David sends for her and he sleeps with her. And a short time later, Bathsheba learns that she's pregnant, and then she sends word to David to tell him. And rather than take responsibility for what's happened, David sends for Uriah, and he tries to get Uriah to go home 
to come off the battlefield, go home, eat a good meal, and to sleep with his wife so it looks like the baby is his and not David's. But unfortunately for David and his deceptive plan, Uriah sees that decision as a betrayal of his own integrity, and so he refuses to go home to see his wife. And as a result, David chooses to have Uriah murdered. And Psalm 51 is David's act of repentance when his sin comes to light. Now here's the thing. David could have shifted the blame. He could have said something like, yeah, yeah, I did do this, but, you know, if, if Bathsheba just would have been bathing more discreetly, I never would have fallen into all this. So it's like at least 35% her fault. Hey, David could have said that. He could have shifted the blame. Now, you might hear that and think, well, that's just like super disgusting. <laughs> that's ridiculous. But you know what? If you think about it, that's sort of been the tone of most of the teaching from Christian men for the past like hundred years. They say things like, you know, if, if women would just dress more modestly, if they wouldn't wear yoga pants and two-piece bathing suits, we wouldn't struggle with lust in the way that we do. But, and just hear me out on this, guys, if we want to deal with lust in our lives, maybe we should stop looking at porn like our life depends on it. Maybe we should take basic responsibility for the decisions that we make, the actions that we take, and we stop making it women's problem. We have to stop shifting the blame on everything in our life. True, reconciling apologies don't shift the blame, which is why we don't see that from King David in Psalm 51. He made a massive, committed a massive failure in his life. But at very least, when that sin did come to light and he comes under conviction, at very least, thankfully, he does not shift the blame. Instead, we acknowledge wrong and we accept full ownership. Thirdly, and we'll move quickly through these last two. Thirdly, is ask for forgiveness. Ask for forgiveness. In Psalm 51, verses 1 and 2, David writes, Be gracious to me, God, according to your faithful love, according to your abundant compassion. Blot out my rebellion. Completely wash away my guilt and cleanse me from my sin. David here is asking to be forgiven. It's not enough for us just to acknowledge wrong done or even just to take responsibility and full ownership. We have to say, I am sorry, will you please forgive me? Now we're going to talk about forgiveness in just a couple of weeks, but here's a quick spoiler on that message. There is no reconciliation apart from forgiveness. It can't happen. When one of two parties harbors hurt, Reconciliation has not taken place and it cannot take place. There must be forgiveness, which means we have to be willing to humble ourselves and to ask for it. So we acknowledge wrong done, we accept full ownership, and we ask for forgiveness. And then finally, number four, we act as necessary to make it right. We act as necessary to make it right. And this is the point at which a lot of our apologizing fails because it does not go far enough. In Psalm 51 verse 13, after acknowledging wrong done, after accepting full ownership, after asking for forgiveness, David says this, then I will teach the rebellious your ways and sinners will return to you. So David 
faced the consequences for his actions, and he changed. He put feet to his apology. David took deliberate and intentional action in lieu of the apology that he had made. And this is the complete picture of what repentance truly is. Sometimes we confuse repentance as being nothing more than confession. Well, I confessed my sin to God. Well, good, that's great, and that's important, and that is one step. But that is not the totality of what repentance is biblically. Biblically, repentance is a change of heart, mind, and direction. We experience a change of heart. My heart is broken due to my sin. It's a change of mind. I think differently. I acknowledge that what I've done is in fact sin from God's perspective. And it's a change in direction that says, man, from here on out, I am doing the opposite of what I've done. And every example of genuine repentance in scripture follows this exact same script. Now, oftentimes, we are, we are willing to say something like, hey, you know what, I've messed up and I'm sorry. Are we good now? I just described like 95% of apologies in marriage. Uh, sorry about that. Um, um, are we good now? <laughs> that's, that's where we tend to end with it. And the problem is, when we apologize like that, oftentimes our hearts are not truly broken by the hurt that we have caused. The truth is, our lives are just being inconvenienced by that person's hurt. So often, our goal is not reconciliation. Our goal is the removal of something that is inconveniencing us. And that's not the same thing. True repentance that results in a reconciling apology not only acknowledges wrong done, not only accepts full ownership, not only asks for forgiveness, but it also looks for an opportunity to actually make it right which at very least means working not to repeat whatever behavior caused the hurt in the first place. Racial, racial too, but relational reconciliation, that's a whole separate message that we don't have time for today. Relational reconciliation is of urgent importance to Jesus. And so as we close this morning, before we go on to Q&A, I wanna draw our attention to something. These verses in Matthew chapter 5, they are a great example of the disparity that often exists between Jesus' desire on the one hand and ours on the other. And here's what I mean. It's evident that Jesus sees relational strain and festering anger as an urgent issue to be addressed. But oftentimes, we tend to avoid that like the plague. And my concern isn't just those relationships that are strained in our lives. My concern is that we have designed in modern Christianity, we have designed a new and sadly incomplete means of walking with Jesus. Somewhere along the way, we have become comfortable separating our relationships with one another from our relationship with God. And that is not what God intended. But as a result of that, our spiritual formation has become exclusively about private spiritual disciplines like prayer and meditation, fasting and solitude. And all of those are essential to our spiritual formation, but they are not the sum of life with God. He has designed our relationships with one another to be the context in which all of this works its way out. And so listen, it is great to study things like humility and patience. And it is critical, 
that as followers of Jesus, that we pray and we ask God's spirit to help us grow in these areas. But guess where those things are actually developed? They aren't sprinkled on us like pixie dust in response to a prayer. Instead, God puts us in a relationship with people who trigger our pride and try our patience. That's where those things are actually developed. So this is, it's like studying fitness, but never studying, uh, setting foot in a gym. The gym is where that learning translates to real life and results. And in the same way, relationship is where Christ-likeness is cultivated in real life. And so here's the challenge in front of us today. If we are aware of a strain in a relationship right now, and in our honest, quiet moments, we know that strain is our fault, following Jesus means embracing that awkwardness, choosing to humble ourselves, and offering a genuine, reconciling apology. And the truth is, too many of us have theology that all the T's are crossed, all the I's are dotted. And we've got our devotional life locked in and we spend time in God's word and we journal and we pray and we do all of these private disciplines. But I'm telling you right now, if there is a wake of relationships behind you because you don't do relationships well, you are not being formed into the image of Christ. Regardless of how much Bible you read, and how many prayers you pray. Relationship and community is the context in which all of this is applied and worked out. And so we have to lean in to all of that. So we should continually strive to love one another well, but when we don't, God wants to use even our failures to love as a means of deep formation in us. And this is why relational reconciliation Relational reconciliation is of such urgent importance to Jesus. So the question is, who do you need to apologize to today? Let me pray for us, and then we'll do some Q&A. So if you have questions, make sure you send those in. Will you bow your heads with me? Father, I thank you. I thank you that you are a good God who loves us and that you created us to live in relationship, not only with you, but also with one another. And Lord, we we acknowledge and we embrace together this morning that you have created our relationships with one another to be the furnace in which you form us. And so we confess together that relationship is not easy, that it does require an immense amount of humility and sacrifice And we also acknowledge that all of that is what you have called us to. And so we ask for your help. Lord, we ask that you would help us to learn to walk in humility, that we would learn to love one another well. And when we fail to do that, that we would humbly and honestly learn to apologize and to repent and to live that out in our relationships, that that would be normative for us. And so, Lord, I pray right now for any strained relationship that might exist in our life. If it, if it depends on us, Lord, then I pray, God, that you would give us the humility and that your Holy Spirit would give us the strength and the courage to be able to offer a genuine reconciling apology. I pray that you would do that here in our church. 
I pray that you would do that in our families. I pray that you would do that in whatever world that you have placed us in. So help us. We need you in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. All right.